This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're highlighting the Research Ed Guide to Cognitive Science, an evidence-informed guide for teachers edited by Kate Jones and Tom Bennett. Research Ed is an educator-led organisation with a goal of bridging the gap between research and practice. This accessible and punchy series overseen by founder Tom Bennett tackles the most important topics in education with a range of experienced contributors exploring the latest evidence and research and how it can apply in a variety of classroom settings. In this edition, Kate Jones considers various principles from cognitive science that can be used to enhance teaching and learning, including cognitive load theory, dual coding theory, interleaving, retrieval practice and space practice. Cases sourced contributions from teachers and researchers, including Jade Pierce, Sarah Cottingham, Adam Boxer, Jonathan Firth, Paul Kirshner, Pedro de Bruquier, and Lika Sharma. With a special code ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. That includes this book, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30 on the John Cat website or on the Woods Lane website here in Australia. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based education project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bring the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests of the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 82 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Kelly Tatlock. Kelly is an assistant head teacher in charge of teaching and learning at Beckfoot School, a large comprehensive secondary school in Bingley, West Yorkshire, England. Kelly has spent the last seven years primarily focused on building the pedagogical systems that underpin excellent classroom practice, such as marking and feedback, independent learning and homework, revision, and knowledge organisers. During this time, Kelly has led the development of a knowledge and expert learners framework within her school and has begun to share this work with other schools across the UK and beyond. And this is the topic of today's discussion. Kelly's a regular speaker at teaching and learning conferences, including the upcoming Research Ed National Conference in London, and she is passionate about helping teachers and other school staff to develop excellence in their practice. She also champions the use of knowledge organisers, having first-hand experience of how effective they can be when fully understood and used correctly. I actually came across Kelly's work in response to my podcast with Harry Fletcher Wood. 
In that podcast, I mentioned to Harry that I'd been to Michaela Community School, and at Michaela, I'd learned that they had moved away from knowledge organisers because they felt that they led to inflexible knowledge for students. However, in response to this, Kelly posted a thread on Twitter that outlined Beckfoot's approach to using knowledge organisers in a way that Kelly said promotes flexible and deep knowledge structures for students. So, I needed to look a little bit deeper. When I did look deeper, I found that it wasn't just knowledge organisers that Beckfoot focuses on, it's also a whole plan for developing knowledgeable and expert learners. And so I'm really excited to have Kelly on the podcast today for the purposes of dissecting exactly how she and the rest of the Beckfoot school team support their students to utilise knowledge organisers in a structured way that builds flexible and transferable knowledge, as well as developing confident and independent learners more broadly. Also, if you're keen for a weekly dose of educational insight, stimulation and resources, you might like my EdThreads newsletter. Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in an easy-to-digest email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up to EdThreads, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 82 of the ERRR podcast with Kelly Tatlock. Kelly Tatlock, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. 100%. 100%. And for, for listeners' uh, benefit, this is actually the third time we've tried just now. We've had so many tech issues, but where uh, Kelly has replied to that question with the same amount of enthusiasm every time. So I definitely know you are keen to <laughs> for this interview, Kelly, as am I. Kelly, Beckford School clearly has a really big focus on developing independent learners. Where does this focus come from? Okay, so I think it's probably important to start by giving you a little bit of context about the school because we are um, a secondary school in the north of England. We are a completely comprehensive school, which means that we have a really diverse cohort of about 1,700 that come from all different backgrounds, all different kind of socioeconomic backgrounds and ethnicities. And so we've got a really mixed bag in terms of ability, support at home, all of those different things. That's important to know about the school in the first instance. A lot of people think that our school just has like children from affluent backgrounds and it's just not not the case. The other thing that's important is our curriculum drivers. We have four curriculum drivers, which basically underpin everything we do. And these are the things that by the end of their time with us, we want our young people to leave us being, if you like. So they are uh, confident communicators. They are future ready young people. They are committed community contributors, and most importantly, in terms of the work that we're doing with this, uh, they are knowledgeable and expert learners. So that knowledgeable and expert learners driver, if you like, kind of, again, underpins everything that we're we're doing around knowledge organisers and independent learning. Two things that we really firmly believe in, limitless possibilities for all. That's a huge part of everything that we do, that we don't cap any students. And our trust mission, because we are one of 10 schools in a trust is that no child should be left behind. So that's kind of like the values, the ethos, what what we're about as a trust as well. Um, Our school goes all the way to post-16. So we take students in year seven from 11 years of age and they stay with us or the majority of them stay with us all the way through to 18. And one of the things that we noticed as our students were transitioning from year 11, having finished their GCSEs into the sixth form post-16, two years, 
there was a huge jump, if you like, in terms of the independence that students required to be successful with those A-level courses and kind of the skill set that they had when they were coming up to us. So this this jump was massive. And we used to do a lot of talk around this, around when you move up to post-16, you're going to experience this big jump and you know, be ready for it kind of thing. But then we started to unpick, well, hang on a minute, why is there that huge jump? Yes, of course, the courses that they're going to be doing are harder and they're going to be needing to be more independent, but there's something in the middle missing about what perhaps we weren't doing in order to prepare them for that. So this idea about getting them ready for post-16 is a huge factor in what we're doing as well. And then the other thing is really a a knock-on from the pandemic. So after we had all that period of lockdown and students learning from home, when our students came back, we noticed a couple of things. We didn't actually have a lot of behavior issues like some schools were reporting. Our kids were actually, you know, getting on with it, but they were doing it in a really passive way and kind of reluctant to push themselves out of their comfort zones and, and lacking the confidence that might be required to kind of like put themselves out there. So that was something that we really, really wanted to address as well. So with all of those things in mind, the program that I'm going to talk to you about today is is kind of our solution to that, if you will. Mm, That's great. So everything that I've seen on your website and things like that, that's all been created since COVID. So it's like over the, the last couple of years or so. Yeah, mainly. The knowledge organizers, we started just before COVID actually, but the the kind of COVID really presented a huge opportunity for us in a way. I mean, it was it was devastating, obviously, in lots of ways, but we really, really were able to, to seize the opportunity of having kind of that pause and really think about what we wanted to do and, and how we wanted to do it. And, to, and, you know, we just never stopped through COVID. We just kept pushing, pushing away, pushing away. And so, yeah, certainly it's been a catalyst for us. So that, that kind of curriculum driver of knowledgeable and expert learners, Did you have that before COVID? Yeah, we did have it before COVID. But as I say, it was really that COVID was the catalyst for us to really sit back and think about what does that actually mean and how can we bring that to life in a really meaningful way. So does does your whole kind of um, Knowledgeable and Expert Learners program have an overall name? In our school, it's called the Knowledgeable and Expert Learners Framework. So it's kind of like a toolkit, if you like, of different strategies that all have that same kind of focus of of building knowledgeable and expert learners. Maybe you could like paint a picture of it for us of a bit of the structure of the program. Because, I mean, I've seen your independent learning booklets. I've seen your kind of evidence summaries. I've seen some of the the, the, the videos that you clearly used for training and things like that. For listeners and for myself, could like what what's in this program? What does it look like? So it incorporates quite a lot of different elements. A big element of that is uh, home learning, what we call home learning. And home learning in and of itself has two major strands. So we have the traditional homework assignments that are set by teachers with subject-specific tasks. Um, and then we have our independent learning, which is where our ILBs come in. I'll talk about those in a moment. But alongside that, we also have a metacognition and revision program that's run through our tutor time provision, which has been largely developed by a really excellent colleague of mine called Katie Holmes. We also have a resource called My Learning Resources, which again was set up during the pandemic. And this is basically a massive SharePoint that means that every resource, every lesson is basically stored there so that students can go back and revisit things that they've looked at in class. Or if they haven't been in class, they can use that to catch up. 
And what also sits in that My Learning Resources platform is also ways in which students can extend their knowledge. So we're developing at the moment a really comprehensive supracurricular offer. So each subject has, you know, this is what you need to do if you want to go further with this kind of kind of thing. That's in development at the moment. We also include in that a lot of videos. We're getting <laughs> we're getting more and more videos being developed. It started off uh, with sort of voiced over PowerPoints, and we're kind of getting a little bit better at that, I think, now. So we've got lots of videos that there, and they're they're really helpful in terms of helping students to understand how the the different tasks that we're asking them to do work, but also really importantly, why those are the right tasks to be doing. So for example, one of the things that we were really keen to do when we started with the metacognition program is we couldn't start with metacognition. We had to start with cognition first because you can't understand how you, if, if you don't understand how you learn, sorry, then you know, thinking about that learning and being conscious about it is much more difficult, isn't it? So we, you know, we've got videos about how the memory works and and we've got videos about what are the best techniques to use for revision and retrieval practice and this kind of thing. So we've got lots and lots of those on the website. That's great. It's a great resource. So there's kind of, I mean, you mentioned kind of four components there. There's the homework, which is pretty, pretty standard. I I would imagine there's the home learning. There's the metacognition and revision program taught in tutor time and then there's there's the my learning resources like a, a resource hub that contains both content from subjects and content related to like effective learning i'm really interested because actually my school is embarking upon the basically the equivalent of the metacognition and revision program that you do but we're doing it next year and we're also using tutor time so i'm actually interested to start there like what does that look like what like how long is tutor time also you might have mentioned this at the outset but like i'm curious how how big your school is how many students you have but in addition to that like how much time is allocated for tutor time how many sessions a week are used for this metacognition program who runs it and how do they run it how do you make sure they like have have the knowledge to run it effectively and so on so can you give sketch a bit of a picture for us yeah, sure. So, um, our, as I said, our school has got about 1700 students across seven year groups. So there's about 280 ish in each, in each year group. And then there's 280 in the two year groups of the sixth form. And they all have five tutor sessions a week. They're 25 minutes long. One of them is always dedicated to assembly. So effectively, they have four sessions with their tutor. And there's various things that go on in, in that time. The um, metacognition and revision program that we've developed, basically what we did with that to begin with is we had all years having at least one half term where they did one day a week on cognition and then metacognition and revision, except for year 11 and year 13, who did that for two half terms, because obviously they've got exams. So we wanted a little bit more input around revision and things with, with those students. Katie Holmes has developed an amazing curriculum around this that um, is kind of tiered. So they all do the cognition, revision, metacognition, but for each year group, it builds. So that what, what they do in year seven isn't just repeated then in year eight, it's built upon in year eight and then built upon again in year nine and so on. So it is an incremental program and it starts with the basics of how the memory works, looking at the simple model of memory, looking at Ebbinghaus, forgetting curve, all of those kinds of things, and then thinking about what learning strategies are effective and why. So a lot of it's been informed by, for example, Dunlosky's work and the work that is done by Bradley Bush and Inner Drive and, and those kind of people. So there's, it's all research informed. It's all evidence-based. 
So they, they learn the cognition stuff first. Once they've learned the cognition stuff, they then move on to think about metacognition and choosing effective strategies for the right task, that kind of thing. They also cover what we call our revised like a Beckfutter strategy. So there are four core strategies of, for revision, which all of our students learn. Um, they learn them in, in varying depths as they go on through, through the years. Great. Cool. So, yeah, start with the cognition, how memory works, content like that. Mm-hmm. Move on to the, the learning strategies and lots of, lots of science of learning stuff built in there. Yeah. And so that's, that's, the main, that's the main structure. Fantastic. And so you, you said when you started out, it was one day a week. Is it more than that now? Yeah. So we d- what we were doing was we were doing one day a week for a half term. So that would be between six and eight weeks. So they'd have a program that would cover like eight sessions, let's say. And then in year 11 and 13, they'd have two lots of that. So it was only eight sessions per year, basically. Yes, to begin with. Yeah. And so now what, what we're doing and we started, our school year is a bit different from a lot of other schools. We actually start our school year in the last term of the previous year. So we kind of, we have a slightly different pattern. And so this last term, what we've been doing is we've been trialing something slightly different and which we're going to continue with from September onwards, where students not only have those sessions, but they also have once a week a session where they are given the time to practice. Because what we realized was we were teaching them all these great things, but they weren't necessarily having time to practice. And we started to see a little bit of a gap between those students that were really self-motivated or had a lot of support from home, let's say, and the ones that ne- that weren't necessarily as motivated or didn't necessarily have as much support from home. And, and one of the, we did a lot of kind of evaluative work around this. And one of the things that came out from both the students and from families is they didn't have the time to practice. And, and it wasn't just, you know, students that might be considered lower ability students. It was sometimes students who were really high ability students, but were doing loads and loads of things outside of school. So they might be having dance classes and kind of be on a football team or, you know, doing musical theatre or whatever it might be, which those things are really just, just as important. But trying to cram extra things into that busy day is, is quite, it can be a barrier. So what we decided to do was kind of build in some time into the school day so that students, even if they were busy outside of school, were still having the chance to practice. So now every student once a week has a session where they will be practicing those strategies and they've got support there from a teacher as well, which is obviously another bonus. So that's something that we learned about how to make the approach even better than it was when we first started it. That's great. So this year it'll be still the kind of six to eight sessions at the start of the year, then supported by one 25-minute kind of practice session per week. Yeah, exactly. We also time the sessions, so they're not necessarily always at the start of the year. So, for example, when we've got exam years, we'll do a block of sessions just before mock exams and a block of sessions just before the actual exams so that, that we're timing it strategically. That's great. And I mean, in all of the other tutored sessions per year that aren't you doing, not doing this program, what, what, what do you just usually do? So there's all kinds of different things that go on in that session. So we have our PSHCE, which is legal requirement for us. We also have literacy and oracy things going on in there. Time to get to know tutees because the tutor is a really vital kind of point of contact for, for the student and for their family. So that's really important too. And we've got an assembly program that runs through that slot as well. 
Cool. In this rehearsal session that you're introducing this year, how are you structuring that? Is it like free time? Is it like use these strategies, the four strategies we've taught you in any way you want, or are you, are you kind of cycling through this week we're doing quiz it and this week we're doing link it? How, how are you structuring that? So, yeah, we are we are cycling through. So, again, one of the things that we learned about our approach when we've done all the evaluation work is that we originally set out and said to the students, okay, so what our expectation of you is, is that you do 20 minutes a day and you choose the task and you choose the activity. But what we realized is that 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 was too much choice. And actually, some of the students were kind of leaning on, okay, well, I'm really good at quiz it and that's really easy. So I'm just going to do quiz it all the time. And obviously that kind of defeats the purpose of, of what some of the other strategies are about. And also some of our parents, when we, we got feedback from them, were saying it's really difficult for us as parents to know how much is the right amount and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And so we, need, we needed to tighten up on that. So what we do now is we set a specific task for, depending on the length of the, of the term, if it's a short term, it might be one week. If it's a longer term, it might be two weeks. But we set a specific task for that time period. So if you come in year seven and you start with us in September, the first two weeks, you'll be doing quiz it. The second two weeks, you'll be doing map it or link it or whatever it might be. So it's it's set so that for those tutor sessions that they have during that time, they're all practicing the same skill. They have the guidance up on the board f- for them and the tutor is there to support that one particular task, which makes it much, much easier. Cool. And then would the, the students select the kind of, subject that they're going to apply that to in the knowledge? Yeah, they do. So in their ILBs, they have all the knowledge organizers they need for that half term. And they'll be the same for every every student. And they also have within that, they have a dedicated space to complete the activities that go with those knowledge organizers. And so once they've done one, they can't do it again because they've already filled it in. So they're naturally kind of having to pick different topics each time and different subjects. And then the tutor can just check that really easily and check what's been completed as they go. Cool. ILB stands for Independent Learning Booklet, which we'll uh, we'll dive into in a little bit more detail soon. Kelly, thanks. That's really helpful to have that understanding of the structure of the program and also the understanding of how you kind of it's evolving over time in response it definitely is <laughs> yeah and and i'll um i look forward to asking you a bit later on in the interview about that evaluative work because you referred to how you had you know student and teach and parent feedback that's informed that so i'm really interested about that as well but for now let's just um zoom zoom out a little bit or zoom back a bit uh, maybe better to say to the topic of knowledge organizers, because that is really what kind of precipitated our discussion today it was my chat with Harry Fletcher Wood when I was saying, you know, Michaela's moved away from them because they found it was producing inflexible knowledge in, in their students. And then you kind of tweeted me and said, hold on, we've got some approaches here at Beckford School that are working really well. And I, I read them, checked out your website. I was like, wow, this seems pretty amazing. And you've written some blogs, like you've written a blog post called In Defense of Knowledge Organizers and so on. So clearly a, a passion area for you. So clearly for people who aren't, that familiar with the idea of a knowledge organizer. Could you maybe uh, explain to us what is a knowledge organizer and why are they so good? Yeah. So essentially a knowledge organizer is a one-side document, or we try and keep them to one side as, as, as much as possible, that has all of the powerful knowledge from a scheme of learning. The students need to be able to recall and it's very much based on, I guess, have you heard that phrase, need to know versus need to know? No. So the need to know is the, uh, well, I think, I think it's a, I hope I'm not misquoting here. I think it's a Dylan William quote, but 
basically the need to know is the stuff that's absolutely vital to know in order to be successful. But as teachers and as experts in our subjects, we we also have a lot of this need to know stuff. Like N N N E A T need to know. N E A T need. Yeah. So yeah, we have all this extra knowledge because we're experts in our field. We're passionate about it, and it's really great stuff that really enriches students' understanding and students' passion and all the rest of that. But actually, you're not necessarily going to get every kid to that point and it's a real kind of skilled job to be able to pick through what's the need to know the absolute must know stuff and those extra things which are brilliant to know but not necessary if that makes sense now I just I want to make sure that I'm clear here about this what I'm not saying here is that they shouldn't know that stuff and we shouldn't be using that stuff but there's a time and a place for that stuff a knowledge organizer is the need to know stuff And so it should be identified through curriculum planning. And I think one of the big misconceptions about knowledge organizers is you can just pick a knowledge organizer from anywhere that someone else has created and that job's a a good one then. But actually it has to be something that is part of the curriculum planning so that everybody who uses those knowledge organizers, the teachers, the students are really clear on what that really powerful knowledge is. Okay, so so that's the first thing. The other thing is that they should be quizzable as well. So the the reason that that we use them is because they support our retrieval practice and revision. And so if they're not quizzable and there's loads of information on there in really kind of like, you know, weighty paragraphs and things like that, it makes it very difficult to quiz. And that's something to bear in mind with knowledge organizers because they can get really, really weighty. And some of ours have, and we're trying to pair them back and you've just got to keep an eye on it all the time. So it's quizzable, short chunks of relevant information, that powerful knowledge that students can use to test themselves. Because we know that testing yourself is one of the best ways to learn and the best ways to kind of strengthen memory. So that's, that's essentially what they are. They're a really good tool, but they are pretty much bespoke to the individual schemes of learning in a particular school, which is why it's so important to kind of do it at the same time as the curriculum planning when you make these. Mm, that makes sense. Could you give us some examples? And if it takes you a moment to kind of pull one up or something, just maybe from a couple of different subjects and give us a taste of some of the kind of content that a teacher could or that a learner would find on, on one such knowledge organiser. Okay. So this would be year seven. Okay. And they're very, very simple question and answer style, what we call knowledge items. So the one thing that you'll notice about our knowledge organizers is all of the knowledge items are grouped, first of all, and they're grouped into kind of topic areas that that make sense to be together. And a lot of thought goes into what groups those things go into. The second thing you'll notice is that they're all numbered and that makes it much easier to quiz. And then the third thing you'll notice is they're kind of set into two columns after that number, which is almost like a question and an answer. It doesn't necessarily have to be a question, but it's kind of like something that can be easily turned into a question. So the RE one that I'm looking at at the moment, for example, the first knowledge group on there, the first item is who is the Hindu God? And then the answer there is Brahman. And so the students can use that to quiz themselves they can cover the the answers, they can look at the questions, they can cover the questions, they can sort of reverse it, they can, they can test each other and they can test themselves. So that would be an RE one. If I was to give you a maths one. So maths, obviously the knowledge is more about the processes, how we work out certain things, et cetera. So they're sl- slightly different, but the same format. 
Okay, so they have got on this year nine one that I'm looking at, they have got a box for algebra working with simple with symbols, sorry. And uh, knowledge item one on that says expand and simplify. And then what they've got in the next box is an, a worked example of that. So they're showing the process, if you like, of how to expand and simplify. And then the student learns that process and then can apply it to other, other problems. But what, what does it actually say, just for, for the maths teachers out there who are curious? Right, okay. <laughs> it says, expand and simplify 2 uh, bracket 4a plus 2b bracket minus 2 bracket a plus 3b bracket. Okay, that's cool. So it is, it's, like, it's an explicit. Yeah, it is. I was, I was just wondering if it was talking about a general process, like, you know, expand using the box method or, or something like that, or if it was an actual example. It's actually an example. No, it's, this is a worked example. Cool. Interesting. So we've got, uh, we've had maths. Yeah. And then I've got here um, a year 11 uh, English literature. Now this is a GCSE year, year 11. So these, these are kind of like the, the upper end. This is an un from the unseen poetry part. Now, obviously it's unseen poetry, so you don't know what the poem is going to be that you're going to be working with. So the kind of knowledge groups that they have here are about the different language techniques or poetic structures and forms. So as an example, one of them is stanza, and then they've got a group of lines separated from others in a poem. So, you know, they're not necessarily going to be tested on what a stanza is, but they do need to understand that in order to identify it in, in a piece of text. Cool. What's another one um, from the poetry? I'm curious. Okay, so let's have a look. So we've got how to approach an unseen poem. So this is more of a kind of a bit like the maths one is like, what's the process that you would follow to analyze that unseen poem? And there's three things on there. So it's what, how, and effect. So what is, what's the poem about? What happens? What's the topic or theme? How is that communicated? What language or structural techniques does the poet use to present this? And then effect is what is the effect on the reader? What response do they have to the poem? What do they learn or understand? So that one is, is much more of a kind of process of how to tackle an exam question rather than a specific piece of knowledge about a poem. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, how are these knowledge organisers constructed? Is it like the head of that particular subject just doesn't everyone agrees or is it like a collaborative process that's done in professional development time? H how do you do that? Yeah, so it's very much a collaborative process. We've got, as I say, really quite a large school and we've got over 100 teachers. So for example, a GCSE English course, there might be six or seven different teachers for that. So it's really important that we're working together to make sure that everyone gets a consistent deal. And so each Monday, we have what we call our collaborative planning time and staff are given that time to work on curriculum development. And of course, Knowledge Organisers is part of that. Is that like an hour before or after school or lunch? Or So we used to have an hour and a quarter, but now we have three quarters of an hour because part of that time is dedicated to our instructional coaching CPD, which is another element of what we do. But yeah, so it's three quarters of an hour every week. And then we also have throughout the year six, what we call twilight sessions, which rather than get everyone in the hall and do a kind of someone stands up and delivers CPD, we dedicate that to curriculum development as well. So that time can be used there. But yeah, they're, they're definitely a collaborative effort. And, it is, and it's up to the individual faculty leaders. They may have a group, a team of people within their team that are working on our year seven, eight and nine. And then another team working on the GCSE, or they may all work on it together. So it just depends in each faculty. They just determine what's best for their faculty. Okay, then overall, 
overall approach. That's interesting. I'll just quickly, you mentioned you've now got half an hour each Monday for coaching. I'm just curious how you, how you run that coaching because it's a interesting interest area of mine. Yes, I know. Um, so uh, the coaching is is the kind of the baby of my colleague, Nikki Sullivan, who is just brilliant. And she introduced instructional coaching as really quite large scale to begin with. So we have every single member of our teaching faculties and all of our teaching assistants as well have instructional coaching. We do it on a three weekly cycle. So one week you'll be coached and then the other two weeks, that 30 minutes is what we call 30 minutes for me. And during that 30 minutes for me, you can be working on something that is for your bespoke professional development. So it may well be to do with your coaching step that you're on, but it could be to do with other things as well. So we allow people to kind of, you know, choose what's right for them with some direction. But yeah, it's very much about what's important to you in terms of your professional development at the time. That's great. Dear listeners, a quick pause in this episode to let you know some exciting news. This October, the UK's leading thinker on instructional coaching, Josh Goodrich, is coming to Australia to run a set of three coaching intensives in partnership with yours truly. These intensives are in Perth, Melbourne and Sydney. These intensives will distill over 20 years of collective instructional coaching expertise and experience down into an insight-packed day of world-class professional development. And the topic is how to be the best instructional coach that you can be. Josh and I spoke about the theory and practice of instructional coaching back in episode 74A, and Josh coached me on the podcast in episode 74B. If you haven't listened to this double bill as yet, I'm sure you're going to love it. And these intensives are a great follow-up to that podcast and are fantastic for anyone keen to learn more about how to be a fantastic instructional coach. To find out more and to book, go to ollielovell.com forward slash coach. And if you listen to this, but it's past October, it's still worth going to ollielovell.com forward slash coach because I'm regularly running instructional coaching events around the country and all upcoming events will be listed there. So for a world-class day of instructional coaching training with the best in the business, go to ollielovell.com forward slash coach. That's ollielovell.com forward slash coach. Enjoy the rest of this episode with Kelly Tadlock. Are you coaching in partners or do you have coaches that then have like three people and they see one each week or has it done? A little bit of both, actually. So we have a team of coaches who have been like who've been trained up to be coaches. So they will have a number of people that they will coach, but also they are coached too. So quite often we'll have two people who are trained as coaches who will coach one another. So that's how we work it, so that everybody gets the opportunity because it's such a brilliant vehicle, isn't it? You are very busy at Beckfoot. There are so many initiatives. Yeah. (laughs) Do do you have like a different person owning each one of these and they really drive them? Yeah. So, so as I say, Nikki is the instructional coaching guru. You know, you should talk to her because she's absolutely just so knowledgeable about this. And then what we also have is we have faculty research leads, which is something that we set up a couple of years ago now, which is basically People within a particular faculty who maybe aren't necessarily a faculty leader, but are really talented, really keen members of staff that, that want a bit of extra responsibility and kind of have a passion about something in particular. Sometimes that is subject specific and other times it's more general. So Katie Holmes, who I mentioned before, who's done all the work around revision and, and a metacognition program for us. She is a faculty research lead and that's been her project, if you like. So she's kind of done all the legwork around that. So it works really well. We've, we're very, very lucky. We've got um, a fabulous team and we've got such a lot of people who are just, you know, really keen to kind of 
do as much as possible. So yeah, it works really well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so we've got the knowledge organizers and coming back to that, the kind of impetus for our chat today, and you talked about knowledge organizers must be, must be quizzable, but I guess the danger of that is if we're just, you know, remembering who the Hindu God is over and over again, that isn't necessarily going to help us to answer more complex questions about um, that Hindu God. So how at Beckfoot do you actually promote flexible knowledge through knowledge organizers? Okay, well, this this has been our kind of biggest evolution, if you like, in the way we've used knowledge organizers. When we first developed them, it we used a really basic strategy of look, cover, write, check, and got kids to self-quiz using that. And you're absolutely right about you know the dangers of knowledge organizers being that inflexible knowledge. They can only recognize it in one format. And if you kind of mix it up and switch it around or they, you know, they're exposed to it in a different way, they don't recognize it or they, you know, it freaks them out and they can't cope with it. And we realized that that, that was something that was happening. And so once we kind of spent the first year of our work on knowledge organizers developing the format and developing a way to get kids engaging with them, we knew quite quickly that we needed to do more than that. And so what we developed is a much more generative approach to how students use those knowledge organizers. So self-quizzing is really important and it is, you know, it's the foundational aspect of how we use our knowledge organizers for sure, because getting kids familiar with that knowledge in the first place is, is vital. But going beyond that, they actually need to be thinking about that knowledge. They actually need to be doing something with it and experiencing it in different forms in order to make sure that they've got a really deep understanding and they can apply it in different situations. So we developed four strategies that are based on retrieval practice in different forms and generative learning. We came up with a title which sounds quite catchy, but I sometimes think that the catchy title of it sort of puts us in danger of it not being taken so seriously by people who don't understand what's going on behind it because we called it Quiz It, Link It, Map It, Shrink It. So catchy, easy to remember, but there's obviously a lot more going on than just that catchy title. So Quiz It is about the self-quizzing, the kind of traditional look, cover, write, check, or actually, as we as we now have, we've moved away from look, cover, write, check to just cover, write, check, because the look part means that it's rehearsal rather than retrieval. So when kids are not encountering the knowledge for the first time, we use cover, write, check. So they cover up the knowledge organizer, they write it, write out the answer, and then they check. And that checking is obviously a really important part of it. But we also have the other three strategies. So the link it strategy is designed to help students make connections between the different, not different knowledge groups and different knowledge items that might be on a knowledge organizer. And so what they do is they take three to six pieces of knowledge from a particular organizer and they write three statements to connect those pieces of knowledge. So it might be a compare and contrast. It might be a support or refute, or it might be a sort of cause and effect statement. So X happened because of Y, um, and this was the result kind of thing. So that's our link it strategy. And, and what that means is that students are kind of really having to think about that knowledge much, much more deeply, and that helps with their understanding. Shriek It is about summarizing, and that actually ties into our literacy strategy, which is run by Luke Parkinson in our school. And one of the things that we sort of recognize is that you can't really effectively summarize something unless you understand it. So that summarizing is a way of demonstrating the understanding that students have. And so we teach them how to summarize effectively. And then once they know how to, they can summarize a knowledge group or even a whole knowledge organizer based on their understanding of that topic. 
And then Map It, which is not the final one, it's the penultimate one. Uh, Map It is about using graphic organizers to take the information and to present it in a different way. So we teach them a number of different types of graphic organizer, but obviously as they go on, they learn more and more. And we start off with a mind map, but then they develop on different kinds of graphic organizers as they become more proficient. And part of that is helping them to choose the right type of graphic organizer for the right kind of relationship that they want to show. Oh, and you said that was the penultimate one. Does that mean there's another one? Yes. Yeah, so, sorry, uh, shrink it is is the is the final one. So we've got quiz it, link it, map it, and shrink it. Cool. So you've talked a little bit about how you kind of teach quiz it. I mean, that's probably the most simple, really, because it's just the cover right check. Do you find that the first time you introduce that, you need to do anything particular to get students to do it correctly, or they just kind of get it? Well, to be honest with you, it's it's actually that the cover look cover right check is stolen from primary school. So most of the kids will come to us having been familiar with that and it's used for spellings and things like that in primary schools. But we still have to teach them how to do it properly because if we're not careful, what we find is that students will miss out the cover bit and just kind of copy. And that obviously defeats the purpose. So one of the big important things is them understanding why we're doing this. What is the benefit of doing the self-quizzing? And that comes back down to our cognition stuff that we do through the tutor time program. So understanding that testing yourself, and even if you get it wrong, that action of trying to remember is the thing that's going to help to strengthen that memory in the long term is really, really vital. That's great. Linkit is a really interesting one. Making connections and comparisons and so on is really the, the basis of learning. Like what is learning? Learning is connecting some new piece of information to something already stored in long-term memory. I mean, students often don't do that and don't really know how to do it, even at the higher year level. So how do you explicitly teach students how to actually kind of link ideas together in a meaningful way? Yeah. So that's definitely one of the things that we we sort of encountered as a bit of a problem when we first started doing this. As I said before, the students would kind of naturally, when we gave them loads of choice, they would naturally kind of veer towards the easy things, the self-quizzing, maybe a mind map. But obviously we want them to we want them to to delve into that kind of more tricky, more kind of cognitively difficult stuff. Um, and so what we what we do is we teach them really explicitly during our tutor time program how to do that. And then because all of our staff also know these strategies because they're all tutors, then that feeds into what's happening within subjects as well. So part of what they'll learn within their subjects is, is how to make those links. Okay. So can you tell, tell us more? Like when, when you say you explicitly teach the students how to link it, like what is that, what does that instructional session look like? The actual instructional session in the tutor, what we do is we use some worked examples of how to make those connections. So they, they're given some examples of how to compare and contrast and they're worked through and then they're given time to practice that. And it might be that in that tutorial session, they all work on one specific organiser. So they're all looking at the same bit of knowledge. So that's easy for the tutor to check that they're doing that right and intervene if there's anybody that's not quite getting that right. So it's kind of a bit of instruction, a pause, tutor will check. And then again, another example, a bit of instruction, a pause and a practice, and then tutor will check. Cool. Is that something that the school would share? I'm not entirely just on memory sure the exact details of the lesson plan, but I do have that um, available in school and I'll share that with you tomorrow if that's okay. Sure. And we'll pop that in the show notes for listeners. That sounds great, Kelly. I mean, something I have seen 
is in your independent learning booklets, which we'll also get to in a bit more detail. You have like a bit of a scaffold for the strategy of Linkit and you have there's three boxes. One supports students to compare and contrast. So one is cause and effect and one support and refute. And under compare and contrast, it has the sentence templates of like X is similar to slash different from Y because dot, dot, dot. X is more slash less than Y because dot, dot, dot. And in cause and effect, you've got X happens because of Y. X and Y together work together to produce Z. And support refute, you have X supports the idea of Y because or X refutes the ideas of Y because. So, you've been really, really explicit. And I can, I can see, even though we can't remember the exact examples today, I can see how the explicit modelling of sentence structures to help students connect ideas is really, really clear way of linking it. Yeah, that's right. And alongside that, because we have those sentence starters, but then we also have images as well of how they would identify that in their knowledge organisers. And then the box where they would complete that exercise that you can, they can see the sentence that's been constructed from the knowledge organizer above. So that is all in their ILBs, but it's also the lesson is like a video version of that, that that goes along with it. So they would follow that through. There would be some clear instruction with those kind of examples and then time to practice. Got it. And so the, the actual kind of images here i can see there's like a picture of a knowledge organizer there's like two sections of that knowledge organizer are highlighted which are obviously the two bits of information that are compared or contrasted and then in a box it says you know a formal sanction is similar to an informal sanction because and i can't actually read it because the screenshot i took isn't isn't good enough but um you might be able to see it in on your copy so that's good to know that they're actually screenshots out of the training video and so does that mean that in your tutor sessions the program's essentially delivered through video that the tutor will pull up, put on? Yeah, it is. There's two reasons for that. Firstly, it's because it's with such a large cohort and a large cohort of staff, it just eliminates any potential inconsistencies by by doing that. So all of the students and all of the staff who actually are also refreshed and reminded of this through delivering this in their tutor sessions, they're all getting the same message every time. So that it reduces that kind of variation, which is really important. And then the other thing is that because it's delivered in that way, it means that we can then store it on the website and it can be revisited. So students who maybe think, you know what, I'm not quite sure, I've read the instruction, but maybe I need to listen to the video as well. They can do that. And then the other aspect of that, which is is really important, is that it's there for families too. Bearing in mind that a lot of this work is going to be done outside of the classroom, families sometimes they feel at a loss of how to support their children because things are so different from when they were at school. And so that provides a scaffold for the parents to support their kids as well, which is, you know, something that we think is really useful. That's great. You've thought about it all, Kelly. Love that. <laughs> so we've had a bit of a look at Quizlet. We've had a, look, a little bit of a look at Linkit. The next one is Mappet. I think one of the errors that's often made with this idea of concept mapping is that people feel that there's only one type of concept map. You know, there's a big circle in the middle then there are lines and then there are small circles with words in it, right? But as you highlight in your guidance for students, there are actually multiple ways of mapping information. Do you want to expand upon that for listeners? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I, I will have to say now that the um, the ones that we've got in our ILBs are shamelessly stolen from, from Ollie Cav, whose work around this is just amazing. But we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, aren't we? And, you know, um, these things we know work. So there was no point in trying to reinvent the wheel, I suppose. But yeah, so we've got different types of 
graphic organizers for different purposes. And there are hundreds of these. There's loads of different ones that we could have chosen, but we chose the four that we thought were most appropriate for our students and the kind of work that they would be doing. So you've got your ordinary mind maps for chunking and organizing information into categories. And the example that we've taken from Ollie Cab's work there is an example using different bits of the story from Three Little Pigs, <laughs> but just to show, because it doesn't matter what subject it is, the concept is the same. We've also got in there flow sprays, and these are the kind of things that you would use if you want to show the events that happen in a particular sequence. So almost like a timeline. And the example that we've got in here is an egg developing into a tadpole and then into a, a bullfrog, and then the different things that happen at each of those stages. So it's a bit like a timeline with offshoots, if you like. Yeah, so the flow is like egg, tadpole, bullfrog, and the spray is like characteristics and other things that happen around when they're an egg, such as there's looks like crows are dangers to eggs and there's like the mother leaves the eggs and the eggs float and then for tadpoles they have gills that helps them breathe they have tails that help them swim and they have legs well, they don't have legs actually that's interesting and then the bullfrog etc etc so yes you get the flow and then sprays off that cool great that's right and then so the third one that we have is double sprays and that's about comparison so similarities and differences in between information so in the middle of the example that we've got here, the black boxes in the middle, this comes from Jack and the Beanstalk and comparing it with Pinocchio. So the, the bits in the middle are the things that those two stories have in common. So things like they're both easily tempted, they're both in danger, and um, there's a happy ending in both stories. And then you've got white boxes uh, around the outside, which are things that are different about those two stories. So for example, in Jack and the Beanstalk, he's a gambler. But in Pinocchio, he's a puppet. So you've got those different things that are unique to those two stories. So it's another way of representing the kind of compare and contrast statements that might be used in the Linkit activity. That's great. Yeah, and there's there's many more. I mean, you've also got the fishbone diagram. We won't go through that in detail here. But the, the point is mapping it is, uh, I mean, it's in, all this learning stuff is what are we doing? We're linking. So fundamentally, it is another way of linking. But here, it's a visual way of linking rather than using language exclusively to link it. So I think it's great. And the the way you've you've drawn as a, as you said shamelessly stolen, which I think is is the, 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 exactly the right way to do it. <laughs> Oli has fantastic work on this. is 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 fantastic. Shrink it is the final teaching and or should I say learning technique that you share in your independent learning booklets and in the in the approach more generally how do you teach students to summarize so this is as i say linked to our whole school literacy strategy that's run by luke parkinson and essentially what we've done here is done this in kind of four steps so the first is about skimming over the knowledge organizer and looking for the key information and again with this one within the ILB itself and also in the instructional video, there is an example of what that might like look like when it's been done. Step two is to highlight or underline the things that you think are the most important. Then step three, once you've got that list of things that you think are the most important, you then think about, okay, so of these points, and there might be lots of them, which are the most important points? And if you start to rank those points for the fourth step, you can say, right, okay, which are the five most important points? And I mean, if we were summarizing, we might have more than five points, but for the purposes of what we're wanting our kids to do as a practice with this, we, we just give them space to do five. 
So they bullet point then the five most important points using as few words as possible. So what they're left with is five points that kind of effectively give an overview of the most important bits of knowledge from that topic area. Right. Okay. So it's kind of a, it's, it's like a filtering process where students start with the knowledge organizer and just play with the ideas, order them, sort them, rank them, think, and things like that, put them into their own words to shrink it and to, to make it their own. That's, that's great. So they're the four strategies you talked about, but in, in your learning resources, I also saw mention of flashcards and flashcards are a bit of a passion area of mine uh, right. <laughs> for, for over a decade personally to consolidate my learning. But um, I have found they're very difficult to get students to use correctly and to use consistently. How do you teach students to use flashcards uh, at Beckfoot and how do you support them to actually uh, use them effectively? Well, again, this this particular area, the flashcards, is very much the work of Katie Holmes, one of our faculty research leads. And just like you, she's really passionate about flashcards. So she has uh, done a lot of work around what we call our advise like a Beckfooter strategies, and flashcards is one of those core four strategies. So just like with the Quizit Link It Map It Shrink It stuff, we use tutorials during the tutor program and practice sessions because we kind of put these these things together. So it's it's ILB's work and it's revision work. And actually, one of the things that we trialed this last term, which we're going to continue with in September, is actually key stage four and five have moved away now from Quizit Link It Map It Shrink It. For our international listeners who are key stage four and five. Oh, sorry. So yeah, key stage four is our GCSE years. So that's our year 10s and 11s. So they are 14 to 16 year olds preparing for their first set of public examinations. And then key stage five is our post-16 students, so 16 to 18 years, preparing for the A-level examinations that will then open the doors for university for them. So it's our oldest students. And so we originally had everyone doing Quizit, Link It, Map It, Shrink It. And actually what we realized is the, the revision strategies that, that Katie's worked on, flashcards being one of them, are very similar anyway. So it's, we're doing still the right kind of things, but there was a psychological thing about a child who's 16, a young person, sorry, who's 16, doing exactly the same thing as an 11-year-old. And for them, kind of, you know, feeling that maybe it was a bit babyish, sort of a a rebranding has occurred for those older students. It's really interesting because one of the things that we did was we did a lot of uh, student voice around this as a part of our evaluation. And that was one of the things that came out time and time again, is they were a bit turned off by the fact that it seemed babyish. And really, looking at it long term, because we've only introduced this in the last couple of years, they've only had two goes at doing it. But if they do it in year seven and they're still doing it by the time they get to year 11, that's like five years of doing the same thing. So actually, it makes sense to switch it up a little bit. The principles are still the same. So, you know, they're revising, but they're the same kind of learning strategies because it's all evidence informed anyway. They're just branded slightly differently. But flashcards is one of them. Katie Holmes has done a a lot of work around this and um, she has developed this program around revision. And in terms of how she teaches students, it's very much the same as how we've taught the Quizit Link It Map It Shrink It. It's clear worked examples students can see, can refer back to, and really importantly, time to practice. So in those practice sessions, they will make those flashcards and then they will use them to test themselves or to test each other. So there's a lot of explicit instruction about what makes a good flashcard. 
and you know the best ways to use them and not falling into the trap of keeping quizzing yourself on the ones that you already know the answers to but actually kind of making sure that once you've got that bit of knowledge from that flashcard really secure and you're getting it right every time you put it away and look at something different for a bit because it's the ones that you don't know yet that you really need to practice with so as I say it's very similar to the strategies that we've used elsewhere okay and so you have your six to eight sessions in the first half term, whatever it might be. You have one session a week. But then when I look at the, I mean, I could find on your website one, two, three, four, five, six, seven revision strategies maybe. Where do they fit in? So we've got what what is called our, our revised like a backfoot of the core four strategies. And then there are additional ones. So everybody learns those core four. But then, so we've got flashcards. We've got mind maps, which is basically the graphic organizers the same. We've got self-quizzing, which is the same as Quizit. And then we've got brain dumps as well. So they're the core four. And uh, students are taught those through the tutor program. But then in preparation, particularly in year 11 and 13, in preparation for those public exams, they have like an intense kind of mini scheme that they follow through where they learn the core for. And then if there's anything additional, we can add that in as well. And different subjects as well might favor a particular strategy. So they're there to kind of draw from. The key is that what we wanted to make sure that was um, all our teachers were teaching the same strategies in the same way. So it wasn't confusing for students. But obviously by the time you get to year 13, you might want to be using slightly different strategies depending on the subject, of course, than you might have done further down the school. Mm. And I remember earlier in an interview, you said that in later years, you kind of do those six sessions closer to the actual exam time. So the kind of quiz it, link it, map it, shrink it is replaced by these other sessions? That's right. Yeah. They're revised like a Beckfutter session. So we do it just, um, just in the lead up to mock exams to help students prepare for those mock exams. And we do it just in the lead up to the actual exams as well. So they're getting that kind of reinforcement. But then in between, they're also getting the chance to practice on a weekly basis, just like the younger students are doing with Quizit Link It, Map It, Shrink It. I mean, that's it. Interesting, because you get, you're now giving the weekly practice, you could potentially move the initial instruction to earlier on in the year so they could, they, they've got a longer period to kind of practice that. Because what's happening in the sessions, the one session a week in the year before they actually get that explicit instruction of the strategies that come before the mocks? So th- we, do actually, we do actually teach them all right at the beginning. So in the first week of the school year, the students that are with us currently they had this last last half term because, as I said, our school year starts a bit earlier. So they had a really intense period of learning all of those strategies and they had a week on each where that's all they did for that week in, in their sessions. So like, four, like four, four tutorial periods a week. That's right, yeah. Like you do four sessions on flashcards and you do four sessions on dual, like or whatever it might be, mind maps and it's so on and so forth. So no, not quite. So each week we had one session that was on one of those strategies. So let's say flashcards as an example, and then they would practice that in that week. The next week we would move on to the next one and they would practice in that week. In that week, you mean in the following, the subsequent tutor sessions, or you mean just in in home time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Actually both. So they they did those activities at home as well that week. Cool. Sorry, it's confusing, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's really helpful. I'm really appreciating being able to drill down because, I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're trying to work out, right? Like yeah. how much practice the students need, how do we structure it and, and so on. So, I mean, we're incredibly grateful that you guys have, have, have charged ahead <laughs> and done, done so much work on this 
already. I'm really interested that, you know, we're calling them mind maps instead of map it. We're calling it self-quizzing instead of quiz it. Does that, does that really fool these 16-year-olds, Kelly? Let's be honest, they're not daft. <laughs> they're not daft. But the, the thing that I think saves it is that we go into quite a lot of detail each year in more and more detail about why we do the strategies we do. Why are they effective? Why does it sometimes feel like the more tricky things are the more effective things to do? So although, yes, effectively, they are very similar things that they're doing, their level of understanding of why they're doing them, hopefully, (laughs) is deeper. So I think that's how we kind of mitigate that, you know, oh, you're just dressing it up in another coat kind of thing. Okay, cool. So let's come back to these ILBs, these independent learning booklets. We've mentioned them a few times. What are these independent learning booklets or ILBs and, and how do your students actually use them? What do they look like? Okay, so essentially they are an A4 booklet. And inside the booklet, they have serves a couple of purposes. So the, the very first part of the booklet is um, has a load of QR codes to homework instructions for the different subjects and um, some information about how to access my learning resources and, and all of those kind of things that would help them support them in their independent learning. And then the bulk of the booklet is the knowledge organizers that they need for that half term. So key stage three students, that's our uh, 11 to uh, 13 year olds, uh, 13, 14 year olds. They all have exactly the same as each other because at that point, they're all following the same program of study. When they get into their GCSE years, year 10 and 11, they obviously have different options. So we have a core booklet of the core subjects, which are all the same. And then they have an options booklet as well with their specific option subjects that they've chosen. Do you like personally make that for every student? And if so, like how do you realistically personalize them? So what we do is with the the core booklets, they're all exactly the same. So every student gets the same version of that. And then we've done it a couple of different ways and kind of trialed and errored as, as we've gone. We knew that it would take a while to get this just right, especially considering copying costs and all of those kind of things that are, you know, really important in the current climate, not to mention the environment. And so we started off by giving students folders and they would get a mini booklet for each subject that they were studying. So each kid got a booklet that was bespoke to them and and it was all kept in one folder. We've moved away from that a little bit now because it's quite onerous to to put that all together. And so what we've got now is a core, well, what we call an EBAC booklet. So EBAC is the um, English baccalaureate qualification, which includes maths, English, science, a humanities subject and a language. Okay. So all kids have got those. But there would be different levels of maths, for example, wouldn't there? Yeah. So do they get all the levels of maths? They do. So there's foundation maths and there's higher. And then um, there's also further maths as well. And the knowledge organizers are really clearly labeled. But the foundation, all the students will study the foundation. They're just the foundation students won't look at the higher ones, if that makes sense. Okay. Got it. Same would be true in science as well. So we've got different science courses. We've got combined science and, and separate sciences. But what's on the sort of lower science is the same as the beginnings of the higher science. So it sort of fits like that. So they, then they have an options booklet as well. And so what, we, what we've done with the options booklet now, because actually, ultimately, it does save a lot, is we just give them a booklet that has all the options in it and they just select the ones that are pertinent to them. And it saves a lot of time and ultimately it ended up saving a lot of paper because the students that were getting the kind of little mini ones that were two or three pages long were losing them all the time. They would just go missing and then they didn't use them and it became a bit difficult to manage. So we've just gone to a booklet now and it's much better. 
I mean, why do you bother splitting it in two two booklets anyway? Then, if all students get both booklets, being really honest, our photocopiers can only handle so many pages okay, at once, and then staple them. So that's why. <laughs> okay, good to know. So when when the photocopy is upgraded, you will move to one booklet. That's good to know. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you, you touched on an, another question I was going to ask then, which was like, how do you stop the students from just losing their booklets? So because the booklets are like they're nice booklets when they're produced, um, they value them more. And because we use them all the time, we refer to the knowledge organizers in lessons. So they need them with them. We have it as part of our equipment list. So on our equipment list, we've got a load of things that students are expected to bring. And if they don't have them, they get um, a behavior point for that. So the ILB is part of their equipment list. They have to have them out in tutor time every day. So they're just high profile and so the, the kids value them and it's just built, it's just being built into our culture now that that is what you have. Prior to the ILBs, we used to have an old style student planner that we gave to every student, which was part of our equipment list. And, you know, you're always going to, you're always going to get the odd one or two that don't bring it or that, you know, forget it or it's, you know, whatever, but the vast, vast majority do bring them with them. And we, we don't really have much of an issue with that anymore. Oh, and so, I mean, that relates to another question I was super keen to ask, which was about integrating all these ideas into standard lessons. So, it seems like because you've got the knowledge organisers in there and the teachers are referring to those knowledge organisers, they're using it in class. Do, like, does everyone, every teacher refer to those knowledge organisers like every class or and, and how is it built into the curriculum in other ways, if at all? In all honesty, it's still a bit of a work in progress for us and it's something that you know, with the best will in the world, I'd like to be able to sit here and say to you, yes, every single teacher refers to these in every single lesson. The, the reality is that that doesn't happen. The majority, the vast majority of our teachers refer to them. And one of the things that we found from our evaluation that we did is that particularly at post 16, um, students were telling us that teachers weren't referring to them as much as they would like. And so that's something that we're working on going forward for next steps is kind of get, building that into post-16 lessons more. But like anything, these, these initiatives, these kind of strategies that you implement whole school things, they take time and you've got to keep it high profile and you've got to keep revisiting it and talking about expectations and listening to the barriers to the implementation of that. And so we just keep working with staff and with students to, to make sure that we're doing the best we can for them. That's great. One very specific point. I noticed I looked at one of your spacing um, documents and there was like this table on optimal spacing and it said if the time to the test is one week, you should revise every one or two days. And it said research suggests, but I hadn't come across that. Do you, do you have a reference for that? I mean, it's got its foundations in Ebbinghaus and the forgetting curve, but actually this optimum spacing is something that um, it's talked about uh, by Inner Drive, but it's based on a paper from Sapida et al. I think it's 2009. And it's a kind of joint piece of research by, I think it's the University of California, MIT, and the University of South Florida. And they looked at different, leaving different levels of time between reviewing sessions and then retaining the information. And they came up with this kind of graph that shows the optimal times depending on how far it is to the test. The main findings from that were that um, the optimum gap to leave before revisiting the same material essentially depends on how long you want to remember it for. And also, the further away the test, the longer the gaps between study sessions should be. So 
what we've done with this, and again, this is this again is not my work. This is Katie Holmes, who's just brilliant with all this stuff. She's tweaked those numbers ever so slightly because it's on like a curve. So she's tweaked the numbers ever so slightly to make it fit a school calendar, but they are absolutely based on that piece of research. So that's where it's come from. That's great. Thanks for that. And it's just a particular question I had. I was like, I don't want to know the, the, the source of that information. <laughs> yeah. So these these independent learning booklets, just to, to paint a bit more of a picture for listeners, they've got every knowledge organiser in them. And then pretty much following each knowledge organiser, they have the options for students to either quiz it, link it, map it or shrink it. So there's space for them to actually do it. And previously you mentioned students were expected to do, ideally do 20 minutes a night of these kind of generative learning strategies. You found that that was a bit overwhelming for students, a bit challenging. So they're now now in tutor time once a week, they pull out their booklet, they pick one of the knowledge organisers and they apply one of the four strategies to it. Are they also expected, correct me if I'm wrong for that far, first of all, but are they also expected to still do the, the work at home on this? So how is that enforced and so on? So again, this comes down to the evaluation that we did last year on this. So you're absolutely right. Our initial expectation was 20 minutes and they had kind of as much choice as, as possible over which of the tasks they did and which topics they used. So we realized that that amount of choice was quite overwhelming for some of them. And it meant that they ended up either with complete paralysis and couldn't choose anything or they just stuck to kind of the, the more simple things to do rather than pushing themselves to do the harder tasks. What we also found with that was that parents found it incredibly difficult because when we're saying 20 minutes, 20 minutes for one student might be, you know, a whole knowledge organizer. 20 minutes for another student might well be just one box. So for parents to support their students and for students actually to have clarity on what our expectations actually looked like, it wasn't very helpful. So we did two things on the back of our evaluation. Basically, we, we went to, we've gone to a rolling program. So in, as I said earlier, in certain weeks, they'll do quiz it. In certain weeks, they'll do map it, or they might do flashcards or whatever it might be that we're asking them to do. The other thing that we do with this now is we use a system called Class Charts, which is a platform for setting homework. We actually set what we want them to do that week on class charts so that the parents get a notification so they know exactly what we want from them. And what we say to them is whatever week it is, if it's link it week, then you need to do five link it activities. Okay, that's our minimum expectation. So you'll do five link it activities. And if you want to go over and above that five, we're now rewarding them for that. So we're encouraging them to do more than the five. And the kids love it. <laughs> they love getting reward points. And actually, they, you know, they come running up and, and saying, how many reward points do I get for this? I've done five and then I've done another three, you know, which is, which is brilliant. So it's using that kind of carrot, if you like, has really, really helped with motivation with a lot of our students. So we've got better clarity doing it that way for everybody concerned, which, is, which also makes it easier for tutors to check as well. And we've got um, a real incentive for them to kind of take that next step and go above just what is the minimum expectation. That's great. I mean, that that links back to um, you, you mentioned kind of having an equipment list and getting, you, I don't know if you use, I don't think you use the word demerit, but getting a demerit if they kind of don't have their book and you're talking about rewards now. What kind of whole school behaviour management kind of approach do you have and how do you track these points and so on? I guess if I was to sum up our approach in, in a sentence, it would be we, we want to catch kids getting it right. So we're very much about celebrating 
when kids are doing what we want them to do. Of course, we've got a behavior policy in place. You know, you, you couldn't run a school without one, but it's very much a, what we, is called our positive learning strategy. So the clues in the title, it's a very positive system. We've got very, very clear sanctions for things that, that go wrong, but we've also got clear rewards for things that, that go right, which is, I think, really, really important. And each student gets a score for each lesson, which we call their attitude to learning score. So one is the best that they can get. So if they've been brilliant in that lesson, they've tried really hard, they've really pushed themselves, they get a one and it goes all the way down to four and a four would be that they've been removed from the classroom. So does a teacher individually mark every student after every lesson and how do they do that? Yes. So they do do that and it's part of our register. So it's not an additional task. They fill in the register. Every child starts on a one and then if any child moves from a one, then they just adjust that on the register. So it's literally just typing a number into the register. So it's it's two birds, one stone. So would it be like you're, you're all sliding a one, the teacher starts giving an explanation, a student makes a silly sound and distracts student, everyone else, the teacher goes back to the register, moves a one to a two and continues. And so it's kind of, and then they move it to a three. And then if the student gets a four, then they kick him out as well kind of a thing. That's right. Yeah. And it's all, it's, it's all based around some shared language about our expectations and and we have what we call the six p's and those six p's are basics for behavior really so it's proud punctual polite and so on and so if a student is moved from a one to a two they will know from those six p's as to why so they weren't polite so that's why they've gone on to a two or they weren't punctual so that's why do you you see what i mean yeah that's fascinating it's really interesting because in in my second book tools for teachers i had a like a framework for expectation of the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I had three Ps, punctual, polite, and, <laughs> and prepared. So I'm wondering which three Ps I missed, Kelly. Can you help, help me out? <laughs> so we've got polite, punctual, prepared, proactive, proud, and positive. There we go. That's the six. <laughs> proactive. So I missed proactive, I missed proud, and I missed <laughs> positive. That's great. And that, I mean, so it's kind of like a school values thing, but it's an expectation yeah. thing. And so when you... Yeah, when you pull a student up or have a conversation, you refer back to one of those P's. That's right. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode summary will share a detailed overview of the four strategies that Kelly teaches at her school, quiz it, link it, map it, and shrink it, an outline of the independent learning booklets and how the school uses them to support student success, Kelly's thoughts about knowledge organisers and what makes a good one, how Kelly and the team teach and reinforce the strategies within their independent learning booklets and beyond. Reflections from our discussion on flashcards and how to effectively implement these in the classroom. Thoughts on how Beckfoot School involves parents in the task of developing effective independent learners. And finally, links to all the resources mentioned in the podcast for your easy navigation. At High Tears, each of our supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR, clip requests of your favourite episode segments, and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning.
So, if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ETRR podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ETRR podcast. You did say a one is like did really, really well. Yeah. So does that mean at the end of the class, a teacher also goes into the register and just bumps a few students down from a one to a two? Or is it kind of like, oh, one is one is you haven't done anything wrong more so? Well, we basically have, we expect a one from everybody and a one, we've got some clear criteria. I don't have it in front of me at the moment, otherwise I would share it with you, but we have some clear criteria about what you have to do to get that one. It's about, you know, fully participating in the lesson and, and you know, being proactive and, and all of those things. And we expect everyone to start on a one. The vast majority of students will retain that one. But yeah, if a student is is not working their hardest, then they would go to a two, but they would only go to a two. They, it wouldn't be done without a conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Cool. Sorry, I, I interrupted you talking about community points as well. Yes, sorry. So yeah, we, uh, with the behaviour policy, the, there are community points as well. So we have what's called a C1, which is we give to uh, students who've done something brilliant in the community. They may have helped unprompted or picked up some litter unprompted or something like that. But then we have a sort of tiered model of sanctions for community behaviour, which ranges from like silly things like, I don't know, um, not walking along the corridor sensibly um, to, you know, really serious things. And all schools need those. Luckily, they're few and far between those kinds of incidents. But everything that, that could happen is kind of covered off on that on that policy. And so if I'm, a, if I'm a teacher and I'm in the corridor and I see a student misbehave and I don't know who that student is, what's the process for recording that? Well, all of our students wear lanyards that have an ID badge on them with their name on it. So, I mean, we we have, a, luckily, um, we have a culture where I would say 99.9% of the students, if they're approached by a member of staff and asked for their lanyard, would hand it over, no question. Of course, you obviously, you always get the odd, the odd one, don't you? But um, that's, that's one way of dealing with it. And then the other thing is that we always have out on each break and lunchtime our, what we call our support and challenge team. And they are year staff, basically. So they're not teachers. They are there to purely for sort of um, pastoral behavior management, that kind of thing. And they know all of their year groups. So it would be a case of just saying to one of them, that student there, and they know exactly who they are. So And so there'll pretty much always be one of those support staff, support and challenge staff in earshot or within view. And so you'll just say, yeah, yeah, okay. That's right. So yeah, each each year group has what we call a head of year and a pastoral manager and they work as a team of two. So they they know all their students. Okay. But there, what if you kind of catch a student around the corner and you you ask them for their lanyard, is there like an app or like an e- someone you send an email to with a student ID or something? Yes. So we have bought into a system called Clash Charts and Clash Charts is where we log all our behaviour incidents now and, and it has everybody's photograph on it and things like that, which sometimes helps with identifying as well. But basically, it's it's really simple. You would select the student that you want and then you would give them the different buttons that you can select from and they're all set by school, so they're individual to your school and you click on it. Let's say it was, I don't know, they were... I don't know, running along the corridor or something like that. And you would select that particular category that links to our behavior policy. And then that will automatically generate whatever the sanction would be. 
So it might be a loss of points. It might be a detention or it, depending on the severity of sort of incident, it could be, you know, more than that. So, and it notifies parents as well. So parents are always aware what's going on, which is good. Cool. So, and so let's talk about, I know, I know we didn't start this podcast talking about behavior, but like, <laughs> this is fascinating. And it seems like Beckford is a school that has a lot of things very well systematized. So I'm just really excited that we're able to kind of dive I've into this. To- <laughs> I've got to say, we are definitely not the finished article. Um, you know, we, you know, we can learn just as much from everybody else, I think, but. But we, we do do a few things pretty well, I think. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk about like ramping up of positive consequences and wrapping up of sanctions. Yeah. So first of all, positive point. So you talked about when you're bringing your ILB, your independent learning booklet, and you've done eight mind, mind maps instead of five. What are those points? Where do they go? And what happens when you get enough of them? Right. So the the same thing as with the sanctions, it goes on to class charts. So as I said, with class charts, you can you can set it up so that it's absolutely particular to your school. So what we've done now is we've set up that for however many tasks extra a student does, there will be a value of points attached to that. So uh, one to five additional tasks, I think, is 10 points. Uh, Five to 10 is 20. And I think I think is it fifteen, and then if you basically there's a tiered system, uh, and and so let's say a, a student did I don't know thirty additional tasks, they would they would still get the right amount of points for it because you can add them in different combinations, so they get reward points, and then those reward points are tallied up over the over the year. They get points for the different scores they get in lessons as well. So one is so many points, and then if they're on a four, then they get points taken away. But those points all add up to, we have different types of rewards available. So we have regularly throughout the the year, what we call red carpet events, where the students can choose from different activities um, for an afternoon to reward themselves. So it could be that sometimes we order pizzas in for them. Sometimes they might have a film to watch. Sometimes they might do an arts and crafts workshop or something like that. So we've got a range of different things that students who qualify can pick from for that afternoon. And then beyond that, we also have sort of yearly rewards as well. So we always run a trip to a theme park and they have to qualify for that. So it's all, it's all built into kind of the things that we do across the year. Oh, so that's rewards. And so there's like basically students have one big pool of points and when things go wrong, they lose points. And when things go well, they get rewards. When they start to lose lots of points when they get get lots of points, they get these red carpet events, they get like these big events at the end of the year. If they start to lose them, obviously the first thing is they lose the privileges. So you can't attend the red carpet events. You can't, you don't get to go to the end of year celebration. And then what happens after that? Depending on why they're losing the points, the system that we use will trigger different, uh, what they call intelligence events. So for example, if they don't do, if they miss two homeworks in a week, that will trigger a detention, for example, that might be one. If they get a set number of what we would call C3s, which is a community behavior point, if they get, I think it's one C3, it's an after-school detention. If they've had an after-school detention and they don't attend or they do the same thing again, it ramps up to a what we call a leadership detention or a head of year detention. And so there's like a, a tiered system of, uh, there's a tariff essentially that students are really well aware of. Parents are really well aware of and, and all our staff are as well. So it's really clear from the outset exactly what leads to what, if that makes sense. Mm, cool. And so this system, you, do you say you're part of a larger trust? We are, yes. What's that trust? 
it's called the Beckfoot Trust. So we were we were the original school in the Beckfoot Trust, and it started off with ourselves and a special school called Hazel Beck. And we're actually co-located on the same site. So we were the first two. And then over time, we've got now four secondary schools and we've got two special schools and four primary schools. Cool. So all these systems have originated from your campus, essentially, and worked well enough that other people were keen to take them on? What No, what I will say is that each school has their own versions of things that work. And we do, we certainly learn from each other, but all of our schools are very, very different in terms of context. So what works in one doesn't necessarily work in the other in the exact format, if that makes sense. So what we do is we, we network and we share ideas and we put our heads together, but we also retain the uniqueness of each individual school. Mm, okay. Cool. I mean, this is a question. I mean, this the answer this might be clearer to people who live in the UK where trusts are more of a thing. But what is then the if if there's if there are differences? Obviously, you're learning from each other. But if you're not able to like replicate systems apart from having the kind of relationships and being able to talk and learn from each other, are there other things that come with being a member of a trust? Like, are you are the things that are like non negotiable has to be the same or anything like that? Well, all schools agree to our trust contract for a start and we all have the same kind of expectations in terms of what we're aiming for for our children. The obvious answer, I think, from a from sort of monetary point of view is economy of scale. What 10 schools can do is far greater than what one school could do on their own. Centralised um, resources and things like that and, and you know things like HR teams and business managers and that, that kind of thing can be centralised. Even though we celebrate the uniqueness of each context and we're, you know, we, we really, we are all working for the same thing. So those trust drivers that I talked about are the same, the idea of no child left behind, they're the same. And so, yeah, what we're not trying to do is kind of create carbon copies of each school, because as I said, our schools serve very, very different communities and very, very different contexts. So while we do have agreement on the principles that sit behind the systems that, that sort of you see in each of those schools, what that actually looks like might be slightly different. Got it. Thanks for letting us go down that rabbit hole, Kelly. <laughs> That's I, <okay. laughs> I think it all started with how do you stop students from forgetting their independent learning yeah. books? Um, <laughs> and it's like, well, actually, there's a massive system that supports this whole thing. So that's that's great. I mean, that's that answer makes a lot of sense. And often, you know, we have to be that structured about our systems, especially in schools that are the size of Beckfoot if we're serious about making it work for students. So that's great to hear. Let's come back to this kind of parent communication piece. Something I was really impressed by when I was looking through your resources was you have like a guide for students to explain independent learning at Beckfoot, but you also have a guide for parents. And so one of the excerpts um, I really liked was as follows. You don't need to remember everything you learned at school to help your child with their learning at home. So much has changed over the years that the most important thing families can do is ask questions about what children are learning and help them to organise their time. If you can help them in any way, they will love it. If they know more than you, just ask them to explain the topic and how they know their answers are right. All they really need is your time and enthusiasm, and then the learning will take care of itself. Here are some suggestions that may help things get going. Praise, encourage, and ask your child questions about their home learning. Regularly look through your child's independent learning booklet with them. Watch the independent learning videos on our website. Help keep a home learning routine for your child, including checking class charts. Encourage your child to use the after-school homework club. Contact us with any questions via class charts or email. I mean, I love this because it's just so clear to parents because there are a lot of parents out there who, you know, 
you feel like they don't remember everything from school. And simply saying that 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 first bit was a bit that really struck me. Get your students to explain what they know to you and get them to explain how they know that's it's correct. Like, wow, what a great thing for a parent to be able to do. So, with that as a springboard, can you tell us how you do involve parents at Beckfoot in their students' learning? You know, I'm sure you don't just send out a guide to them at the start of the year and expect them to read it. Tell us about the whole process. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, it would be wonderful if there was a silver bullet to kind of, you know, solve the the issue of parental engagement. It's something that is going to always be a work in progress for us, but the, the, the kind of way that we approach it is over communication. So yes, we do send this out at the start. We give it to them when students start in year seven, we give them a paper copy. We send it out every at the start of every academic year, but we also regularly signpost parents back to it through class charts. It's a brilliant. I'm not here to plug class charts, but it's a brilliant tool. I'm sure there are lots of others like it that also is a really good communication tool with parents and it will send them a text on their phone. And, you know, sending a letter out, you've no idea who's read it. You've no idea whether it's actually reached the parent or not. But if you're sending out a text message, people are always on their phones, aren't they? And so they get the ping. And, and even if they don't delve fully into the depths, at least it's in their consciousness. So we, we use that and we regularly send out. So every time students get a new ILB, for example, I will send out a message to all parents that, that says, make sure that your child has got their new ILB. Have another look at our learning guide for families and just keep keep on keep on uh, sort of raising the profile of that that way but that in itself isn't enough we also talk about it at parents evenings so when we're having consultation evenings about progress of children we'll, we'll refer to it we have what we call family it used to be called family forums now called family workshops where we invite parents in and this is one of the topics that we cover in that kind of program of family workshops that we that we run and just because all of our staff know about this and we talk about it all the time in school, whenever they're having a conversation. So if a teacher's having a conversation with a parent about, you know, little Jimmy that's not doing his independent learning, for example, or one of our support and challenge team members are noticing that, you know, one of their students is not doing their home learning or not doing their independent learning, and then they have to have a conversation with a parent, it's part of that conversation. So it's just over-communicate, over-communicate, over-communicate. It's obviously on our website as well. And just kind of refer to it at every given opportunity. I think that's that's the only way to do it, really. Mm, that's a good word, over-communication. I like it. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, Kelly. Something I've been really impressed by in our whole discussion, Kelly, is, is how frequently you refer back to the evaluation of the program and the insights it provided that have helped you to kind of iteratively improve it over time. Can you tell us a bit about what you've done, how you've done an evaluation of your independent learning program? Sure. So there's kind of four parts to this evaluation. The first is kind of what I would call our teaching and learning data, which is kind of, you know, looking looking at what's going on in lessons, looking at what's going on actually outside of lessons is really telling as well. So, you know, how many students when they're in, in their free time are actually sitting and using those ILBs? Are they engaging with them? Are we seeing that? And, and we've seen that more and more and more as time's gone on. So that's that's one piece of the puzzle, if you like. Do you actually track track that with data? You, you called it data. Are there metrics? So yeah, teaching and learning data, as in like the, there are metrics in terms of what we've got logged on class charts. So we, if students are not doing it, we can look at the numbers of students that are not doing it. We can also look at the patterns in that so we can say right 98% of students in year 11 are doing this 
85% in another year group are doing it. So what's gone wrong with that year group? Let's have a look and dig into it. So we, we, we get all that generated through the use of our rewards and sanctions on clash charts, which is really, really helpful. Are some of them related to the, I mean, I know there's whether or not you've got your independent learning booklet, but are any of them related to like the academic strategies that you're teaching? What are you actually tracking? So tutors, part of their role is to check the students are doing those activities properly. So they will check each student, not every week, but there's a cumulative um, sort of amount of what needs to have been done by by a certain time each week and the tutor will check and see if they're on track with that. So if they've got any concerns, then that gets logged. And if they've got any praises to give, then that gets logged as well. So we've constantly got a running total of who's doing it and who's not. It's not necessarily a perfect measure because it changes all the time, but it's enough to give us kind of a starting point to dig a bit deeper from, which I think is the, is the main thing. As I've said, that teaching and learning data, when I mean data, I mean it in the sense of information. So what can I see as well as the patterns that, you know, that give us numbers, the qualitative as well as the quantitative, if you like. That's one part of it. But then also we did a number of voice exercises. So we did a parent and family voice which was a a survey that we sent out to parents um, asking them questions about the ILBs, about what they understood about them, about what they thought was good about them, about what they thought was not so good about them, about their confidence in supporting students with, with those activities, with the communication, with, you know, just everything that you could imagine. We tried to, to ask parents and families about so that we could really get a good picture of, of how successful the strategy had been and what, what we needed to tweak. And we also, uh, we had focus groups with students from different year groups. So we, we, we had sort of structured conversations, if you like, around those booklets and the strategies and what was working and what wasn't working and the same sorts of questions, but just posed to students instead. Got a lot of information from that. And we also talked to staff and tutors, tutors in particular about them to find out what it was like from their perspective as well. You know, having to check all this, is it working? What are you seeing? Are you seeing kids doing it, but not doing it very well? You know, so we, we, we got all of, all of that information, collated it all together. And that gave us a few real clear things that we, we knew we were getting right, but also really importantly, a few real clear things that we knew needed to change. And I've talked about quite a few of those as, as we've had this conversation today, but the biggest one was about making sure it was absolutely clear for everybody just exactly what was expected and taking some of that element of choice away from students, but not so much that they felt restricted, but enough that it wasn't overwhelming for them anymore. Mm, that's great. Do you do this kind of survey approach or evaluation for like everything because obviously you've got a lot of initiatives at your school you've mentioned a whole heap of them today but in relation to for example your behavioral kind of tracking and structure program um i mean your whether or not coaching is having an impact all these different things do you always run an evaluation which we try to it's something that we're getting better at as time goes on one of the great things about this initiative and the instructional coaching actually and and the behavior policy is that at one time or another these things have been on what we call our school improvement plan and that school improvement plan is a, a two-year document, which is basically lays out our priorities and milestones for what we want to achieve by when and the impact measures of that. So naturally, if we're working on something that's on the improvement plan, there has to be a period of evaluation in order for us to show what the impact has been. And, and, we're, and as senior 
leaders in the school were held to account over that by our our boss who is is just brilliant and and really just allows us the wings to run with what we think is the right priority for the school and 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 you know evaluation is a huge part of that that's great love it if a school was trying to start on a similar journey to what you have in terms of not everything or maybe I'll ask that question next but in terms of the kind of developing knowledgeable and expert learners would you suggest they start in the same way that you started in terms of like just the the structure of the program the the amount of content in it and so on do you do you feel like you pretty much nailed that portion with the exception of a bit more time for rehearsal do you feel like you nailed that the first time or did you go too much or did you go too little or what what advice would you have to people starting out to be honest, I think the first piece of advice I would give, and this would be applicable to any kind of initiative that you're going to run whole school, is first of all, think really, really carefully about what and why, because just because it works in one place doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work in another. And the danger is as well, is if if you see all these shiny things that look great and you want to run with, with lots of them, it, it can actually lead to you not being very successful at any of them. So I think that's the first thing and that's that's you know as I say applicable to any initiative but for us with this one we didn't get it right first time the evaluation told us that we were glad the evaluation told us that <laughs> don't get me wrong but I think one of the things that I think I would I would have done differently is the the choice the, there was definitely too much choice there so be careful about that I would also say the, the kind of the first thing to think about if you if you're going to like run with knowledge organizers and independent learning using knowledge organizers is to do a lot of groundwork in making sure that all your team fully understand what the purpose of those knowledge organizers actually is because there are a lot of problems if knowledge organizers are misunderstood and they're not used properly and we've we've kind of alluded to that haven't we through the conversation but that's the first thing is make sure everybody's got that understanding and we did take a long time to get to that point. And I think that that was something that we did quite well, but it takes time and it can't be rushed. And then I think another thing that is really important is to make sure that in order for this to work, because it is so all encompassing and it feeds into all the other like systems and kind of strategies that we use within our school, it's really important that everybody understands it. So not just your teachers, but your teaching assistants, your support staff, your families and your students. So that I said the word over communication before, but it's important here as well, over communicate with all your stakeholders um, so that they get what it is you're trying to achieve and why before trying to run with it, if that makes sense. It's, otherwise it becomes the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to dive into both those, the second and third points you made there. So you said, make sure everyone understands knowledge organizers. Let's start with what are some of the kind of misconceptions that people start with if you do present them in, if you don't over-communicate the importance of them and what makes knowledge organisers, what are kind of some of the incorrect assumptions that people start with usually? Look, teachers have got really, really heavy workloads. That's, you know, the same across the world, isn't it? And when you're producing knowledge organisers, to produce them from scratch, which would be my recommendation, maybe take inspiration from elsewhere, but do them from scratch because it's got to be part of your curriculum planning. It's a lot of work. It's a big task to do. And when teachers are time poor and they're overworked and it, it just seems like another job, and if they don't understand the purpose of it, there's going to be no motivation for them to do it. And two things could happen with that. Either they're going to be really resentful of the extra work and do it begrudgingly, and it's going to fall flat on its face, or 
they're just not going to do it at all, <laughs> in which case it's going to fall flat on its face. So I think a big misconception is a knowledge organizer is just what people need to learn on a piece of paper because it's so much more than that. Okay, cool. And so the next, the final question is, how do you build the shared understanding? What does that process actually look like? Well, for, for us, the way we developed them was through a teaching and learning team. And that's kind of how we do a lot of our big initiatives. So the way that that works is we um, have a cross-faculty sort of working party, if you like, and they are volunteers. They're made up of people from all different career stages. They don't necessarily have to be teachers. We do get support staff joining these parties as well. We call them a teaching and learning team just for want of a better title, really, but it's not limited to teachers. And what we do is either myself or my colleague, Nikki, will run them. And so our job is to kind of filter the research, if you like, and then we filter that research, pass it on to the team, and then they go away and they trial things and they they have a go at things and they're given the freedom to kind of make mistakes and get it wrong a bit. They trial things, they meet regularly, they share their ideas, and then they once they've got kind of where they want to be with it, they will roll it out to a small group within their faculty and trial it again on a slightly larger scale. And then they'll evaluate and refine and then they'll come back again. And then what we end up with is we have an overall teaching and learning policy that's for school, but then there is kind of like appendices to that, which is what that looks like in the maths faculty, what that looks like in English, what that looks like in science. And so it feeds into their faculty level policies and that's how we've done so many of our kind of whole school initiatives over the last few years. And it seems to work really, really well. So it takes a long time to do that. But it's if you want to implement something on that scale, it deserves the time to get it right. Mm, great. So the basic pattern is get a small group of passionate people. They try it. They try it locally. They meet regularly. How regularly is regularly? So it, it depends on what it is they're working on, but certainly at least once a half term, sometimes more than that. And actually what we found with a lot of these teaching and learning teams is aside from the meetings, the sort of official meetings, some of them would be meeting each other anyway, sort of in between times and, and sharing. So there's a lot of meeting going on. <laughs> Got it. That's great. So they meet every every six or so weeks, then they roll it out with small group of like like-minded and interested people within faculties and then kind of build some momentum there. And then when it's to a point where it's sufficiently refined, it kind of is launched at a whole school level and becomes part of the teaching and learning policy. Or I, I assume sometimes it's kind of pitched as well if it if it doesn't seem to work. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's, that's the other thing is never be afraid to get rid of something because, you know, sometimes things just don't work <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. The final point you a bit of advice you gave was make sure everyone understands the, the kind of knowledgeable and expert learners approach. How do you actually build that understanding? What kind of time period does that take? How many sessions? What are you actually doing in those sessions? What does it look like? So again, it's a process. It's not an event, definitely. So it's over time. And we always have on the first day of term of the academic year, we always have a training day. So quite often these things will be launched at that time of year and we'll kind of give a bit of not a how to do, but a rationale, I guess, a, a sort of introduction to the priority and the rationale behind it. And we kind of advertise a teaching and learning team and get people interested in that way. And then we give updates as we go through the year and then in that collaborative planning time that I talked about, those curriculum twilights, that would be the, the time where the, the faculty teams will come together and kind of share their ideas there. So it's constantly being drip fed. And we have our school improvement plans are two-year documents. So what we tend to do is we do our trialing and refining in the first year. 
and then we do our embedding in the second year. And so it'll be a combination of, of training sessions on inset days and learning from one another and just over time I guess kind of slowly it slowly percolates doesn't it into into something bigger as time goes on and snowballs. Mm. Fantastic so I mean a common thread is just explaining the why. Yeah 100%. Kelly do you have any book recommendations that you know you could recommend papers you could recommend podcasts or books is the classic ones things that you've particularly learned from either in the teaching and learning space or elsewhere um that you think have really helped help your learning yeah i think um there are two two books i mean there are so many i could i could list loads of them but there are two particular books that i've read recently that have really kind of shaped my thinking and and been quite exciting and the first one of those is how to outsmart your brain by Daniel Willingham. And within that book, there's just tons and tons of really good advice for, for teachers and for students um, about building effective study habits, uh, preparing for exams, that kind of thing. And I think that's a must read uh, for anybody, for students or teachers. I think that's a must read. So that's the first one. And the second one, I've actually only just started reading, but I already know I want to recommend it because um, it's just so good. And I've actually seen it's it's um, Sarah Cottingham's new book, um, which is part of the In Action series, the, and it's Meaningful Learning in Action, um, which is based on Ausubel's assimilation theory of learning and retention. And I saw Sarah talk about this just before the book came out, and I was absolutely blown away by her talk and about making meaning. And I just thought it was brilliant. And I've just started reading the book and I'm kind of reading it in little bits and frantically scribbling notes every couple of sentences. So it's a very interactive reading experience, but there's so much in there about how we can kind of boost learning to that next level. So that's a brilliant uh, one for me as well. The other thing that I would recommend is not actually a book, but it's a website, if that's okay. (laughs) And that's the Inner Drive website, which is run by Bradley Bush and his team. It's really, really full of fantastic resources. It's got guides on there for students and for teachers. And one of the things that I think is really useful on there, it's got some really, really easily accessible research summaries. Reading the full research papers, of course, is really important, but let's be realistic about this. Not every teacher is going to have time and space to delve into the depths of some of those really kind of meaty research papers. That's kind of my job and my colleague Nikki's job to do that. But for some people, they still want to know about the whys behind things and it's a really accessible way. And, you know, it might kind of trigger them into, well, I want to go down that path and look at that research paper. But if not, it will at least give them a summary, which I think is really, really useful. So, you know, with that acknowledgement that teachers are kind of quite time poor, I think that was that's a useful thing to look at. Can I have a fourth one? Is that okay? Oh, go on, Kelly. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, well, just just because I just mentioned Nikki, she writes a blog as well, and her blog is particularly good for things around CPD and teaching and learning policies and things like that. So her blog is Love to Talk Teaching and Learning, which I'll send you the um, the link for that if in case you want to share it. Yeah, we'll pop in. Uh, what's Nikki's last name for listeners? Uh, Nikki Sullivan. Great. And on Twitter, do you know her her handle? Yes, she's at Nikki, which is N I K K I two underscores. And then Sullivan, S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N. Right. Fantastic. Oh, and just for the for the self-plug, Kelly, what, what, what are you on Twitter? I am at Sock Warrior. So it's S-O-C-W-A-R-R-I-O-R. Love that. <laughs> and if listeners are interested in more of about Dan Willingham's How to Outsmart Your Brain, you can go back to episode 79 
of the ERPR podcast in which I did interview Dan about that book, and um, I'm hoping to have Sarah on soon to talk about her book on Aussie Bell's work. So that's that's pretty pretty cool too. Kelly, what are you ex- most excited about at the moment? This is a tough question. It's really, really hard to pin it down to just one thing, really. So I'm going to cheat a little bit, if that's okay. Cheat again, please. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is this kind of that's, that's kind of been developing over the last few years. This really ever-growing network of educational professionals that are sharing their learning from one another all across the world now. And I guess this podcast is an example of that. But I really do believe that we're just so much more than the sum of our parts. So when we combine our knowledge and we combine our ideas, it's it's only going to be beneficial for the, the children that we teach. And I think ultimately that's why we're all here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is more of a sort of personal one, really. Going forward into next year, we're looking at developing on from the metacognition work that we've been doing at school and kind of putting the focus more on the students and their self-regulation. So that's something I'm really excited about. And I'm really, really excited about the upcoming Research Ed National Conference in London. So that's happening next week. And um, I'm going to be speaking at that. But more importantly, I'm really interested in learning from everybody else there as well. So that's that's my not one, but probably about five. <laughs> Fantastic. And any last calls to action things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Yeah, I think the big thing for me is I think just to think really, really carefully about what we allow ourselves to believe that students can do. So I think sometimes we we tend to shy away from giving students something that we think they might find difficult or we in some way cap our expectations of them. And I think the, the problem with that is that it kind of reinforces any negative ideas that they might have about themselves and what they're capable of. And the experience that I've had with developing this knowledgeable and expert learners framework and all this independent learning that students are now doing is that actually, as long as the right support's in place, they can do so much more than you might have ever thought. And that's, that. as I say, that's certainly been our experience. A few years ago, I don't think we would have ever thought it would be possible for, for students to engage with the independent learning in the way they have. But, you know, that's just one example. I think uh, Mary Myatt talks about this uh, quite a lot as well, about giving students challenging work and seeing them rise to that challenge. And it just rings really true for me. So I would say that that's the thing I'd ask people to do is think really carefully. Don't have limits on what you think children can do and let them um, surprise you. Kelly Tatlock, thank you so much for your time today. I invited you on to talk about independent learning, uh, (laughs) but we have talked about so much more. We went into detail about behaviour management systems within schools. Uh, We've talked about parental engagement and the value and importance of over communicating. Uh, (laughs) You've given us a, you know, a great summary of how to do implementation within a school uh, for for any kind of initiative. Uh, You've, you've closed there with advice on having belief in our students and and really supporting them to achieve what they can. And we've talked in a lot of depth about independent learning. In each of these areas, Kelly, I've been super impressed by both your and Beckfoot's level of systematization, I guess is a good way to put it. You've clearly thought really deeply about the challenges faced and developed systems in an iterative and thoughtful way that solve those problems really efficiently. And you've also invited feedback along the way, recognizing that, you know, we can always improve. And even if we do have a system that's great, it can be even better. So Kelly, thank you so much 
So I've I've loved I have loved today's conversation. I think it's going to be a really really popular one. And um, yeah, next time I'm in the UK, I'm definitely going to be seeing if I can make it up to to Beckford. You've got an open invitation, Ollie. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you as well. It's been great. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Hi all, it's Ollie again with one more thing before you take off, and that one thing is Ed Threads. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? My free weekly newsletter is super short, easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary for teaching and learning that you can get free access to. I often link to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show and that I've discovered from scouring the world of education. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So, if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick-to-read format, just go to ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe to get EdThreads. Stop what you're doing and sign up before you forget. That's ollilevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.